As we go to the Lord and we go to his word, let me bow for a second. Let's pray and ask for God to be with us and to lead us as we open his word this morning. We pray because we need you. I, as the messenger and the herald of the good news and a co-worshiper along with everyone else, need you so much, Father. There is nothing I can do of my own accord, and I pray for my own decreasing and disappearing that Jesus and Jesus alone would be glorified and magnified and be seen. And I pray for all of us that as we come to your word, yes, we ask for knowledge, and yes, we ask for understanding, yes, we ask for an exposition, Well, we pray that our hearts would worship and adore Jesus. The psalmist said today, if you hear the Lord's voice, do not harden your hearts as your fathers did in the wilderness. So may we have soft and tender hearts to receive your word and to have you change and transform us. Father, attend with the power of the Holy Spirit working in your word. Enter into our midst in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles if you have them, or the words will come up uh, on the wall. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We are beginning this morning what is commonly known as the Beatitudes, and even though I'm only going to look at the first three Beatitudes, I always, one of the dangers, and I'll share this a little later on, is always isolating one Beatitude from another and failing to realize that Jesus is giving us a very holistic picture much like what Paul does when he gives us the fruit of the Spirit. I would like, you know, I would love for it for it to be, be joyful and forget about that patient thing. Uh, It doesn't work that way. Same thing when you come to the Beatitudes. They are a well-rounded picture of the entirety of a disciple of Jesus Christ. So I want to read the entire context, which is verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, this is the word of God. Confession time. When I was growing up, six, seven, eight, nine years old, and my father would give me, he would discipline me, he would train me, he would do what he's supposed to do, and I wouldn't always like to listen. And pastors, you know, have the gift of gab. God knew I was going to be a pastor someday. I didn't at that age. But, you know, we're always verbal, and I always love to debate. I would always love to say to my father, why? I always wanted to know the reason. Why are you telling me to do this? Why? And he would always give me, invariably, an answer that infuriated me. I hated it. You know what he'd say? Because I said so. Hated that answer. 
Fast forward many years to when Joel was growing up. Now I'm in the role of being the dad. And I'm disciplining, I'm claiming the promises of God. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. I'm believing all these things. And when he would, and he's a chip off the old block, likes to debate, very verbal, likes to debate. And when he would ask me something, now I thought I was becoming more evolved here, or something, because I'd say, all right, I will not say because I said so, even though I had it in my back pocket and I'd use it from time to time. What I would typically say is, Joel, it builds character. <laughs> kind of like, eat your vegetables. <laughs> it's good for you. You need to do this. In other words, it may not make you happy right now. It's not instant gratification, but it has your best interests in mind. Let me ask you, when we read the, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what one author called the Discourse on Discipleship, and particularly the Beatitudes. And Jesus is saying, you're blessed if you mourn, and you're blessed if you're empty of spirit. You're blessed if people are hating you, reviling you, persecuting, all of this. Kind of like eating your vegetables. Now, I know many of us love our vegetables today. But how do we react to statements like these? Because how we react reveals more about our heart than anything else. Because let's remember what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. We are talking about what it means to live under the rule and reign of God. Jesus is talking about not only what is good for us and what is best, but we were created, we were built for life in the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is describing here. We said last week that the Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus, and it's all about what life under his kingship under his rule and reign looks like. In other words, it describes the life of a disciple. It's not about how to get into the kingdom. Remember verse 1. Jesus, seeing the crowds, withdrew, went up on the mountainside or the hillside. And there his disciples, those who've already, as Brother Daniel said, committed their life to receiving Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. You've already made that commitment. You've already crossed the line. God has regenerated you, given you your spirit, brought you into the family. And now Jesus is instructing his disciples, those who've already committed themselves to the King, Jesus Christ, how to live in the kingdom. In other words, it's what the kingdom life looks like. And we said last week that the Sermon on the Mount basically shows us or describes for us three things. You know, oftentimes we'll hear the word of God and we want to know, what does that look like in our lives? Have you ever asked that question? What does that tangibly look like? How does that practically apply? And we said that the Sermon on the Mount shows us tangibly what it looks like to see Jesus, savor Jesus, and show Jesus to the world. And this morning we're getting into some of the concrete ways we do that. We see Jesus, savor Jesus, and show Jesus as we begin the section commonly known as the Beatitudes. Now, before I break it down, let me explain to you what a Beatitude is, because that may sound very foreign to us. Beatitudes are essentially statements of declara or declarations of blessing. Sometimes our biblical translations call it happy. Happy is the one, and I, where there's a kernel of truth in that, I tend to shy away because there's too much cultural baggage in that. You think of happy and you think of how I feel, where blessing is a covenantal term. Now, what do I mean by that? See, we need to understand how God relates to his people. 
and the way we said this is about life in the kingdom, and God the king administrates or runs his kingdom by way of covenant. And blessing and curse are two words, the opposite, that talk about how to intimately relate to God's covenant between God and his people. And a blessing is simply God's declaration of favor. It's God saying, my favor is upon these particular, these types of people. My smile is upon. And the structure of the Beatitudes are very simple. My blessing, my favor, the declaration of objective favor is upon the poor in spirit, those who mourn for a reason. Because, it's not just because they're poor in spirit and not just because they're mourned, it's the result of it. The poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn are comforted by God. Those who are meek, you want to know what the meek get? This to me is crazy. The meek get the whole world. We think it doesn't pay off to be meek. Uh, (laughs) I tend to think it does. You inherit the earth. So the Beatitudes, we need to have a right kind of strategy, if you would, in interpreting them. The Beatitudes are not a rule book instructing us what to do. Rather, they are a descriptive book describing the blessings, the favor of God. In other words, the covenant, grace, and joy that is theirs who already belong to those whose lives show they belong to the kingdom of God. Now, let's before I break it down and we give a brief outline how we're going to work through it, I want to give you an application question. I want to give you something to think about as we're going through this. And again, I got this from Sinclair Ferguson's commentary on this particular chapter. It's a question to think about as we go through these things. Okay, and remember, these are things described, these are marks of the disciple, marks of the pupil, the follower, the learner of Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson asks, what is your heart set on as vital for your life and your satisfaction? Is it these marks? Is it these characteristics? Or do you need something else for your happiness? Let me say that again. What is your heart set upon? Is your heart set upon? Remember, I introduced this by saying Jesus is telling you he's building character. This is good for you. Are you agreeing with his assessment? He's saying that the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, and the rest of the Beatitudes, is this what your heart is set upon as vital for your life, your happiness, your satisfaction? This morning, we're going to look at these first three, poor in spirit, mourning, and meek. And why are they blessed? As I said just a minute ago, the structure of the Beatitudes tells us that the basis of the blessing is the promise. The poor in spirit are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn are blessed because they receive comfort, and not any old comfort, the comfort of God. I loved looking at the promises. I'm assuming these are the main Bible points for Bible school this week. And one of them has the promise of God out of 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul calls God the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So why do the mourn, why are they called blessed? Because they have the touch of God empathizing, sympathizing, reaching out, being afflicted in our affliction, actually empathizing with our needs and comforting us with his very own comfort. 
Maybe it is going to be a value we start to prize instead of avoid. Maybe it's going to be a characteristic we don't run away from, we don't neglect. Maybe there's going to be a little bit more depth and less superficiality to our walk with Christ. Do we long after God like the psalmist who said, as the deer pants after stream of water, so my soul pants after you, O God. O God, you are my God. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land. Do you settle for mediocrity in your walk with Jesus Christ? And again, the meek are blessed. Why? The structure is they inherit the earth. So these three Beatitudes, one commentator, a PCA pastor, his name is Daniel Doriani, calls these Beatitudes of need, Beatitudes of weakness. In other words, learning to embrace the power of weakness. I'll share this real briefly, illustrating this. One of the best books, one of my favorite authors is a man by the name of Dan Allender. Dan Allender wrote a book on leadership called Leading with a Limp. He took it out of the biblical account, the narrative of Jacob, and the angel of the Lord wrestling at night out of Genesis chapter 32. And what was Jacob striving after and wrestling after? Blessing. He was going after, pursuing, panting as the deer pants after streams of water for the favor, the declaration of favor, of the favor of God. And so here he is at night, he gets alone with God, and the angel of the Lord wrestles with him. And what does the angel of the Lord do? He does with what Tim Keller simply calls the power touch. He touches the socket of his hip and gives him a, perfect, a permanent limp. So Jacob, whose name is changed, whose identity becomes Israel, meaning strive with God, wrestle with God, and prevail. And by the way, church, we are the fulfilled Israel. We are the true Israel. We are engrafted into that. So we are what? We are the ones who wrestle with God and prevail. Do we live with a limp? That's what the, these Beatitudes are talking about. Let's break it down this way. We talked about the, how the sermon as a whole shows us what it looks like to see, savor, and show Jesus. Let's look at what it looks like to see our weakness, to savor our weakness, and to show our weakness. First of all, seeing our weakness, embracing it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. R.T. France, a commentator on the Gospel of Matthew, says of the Beatitudes of the whole, he says, the sharply paradoxical character of most of its recommendations reverses the conventional values of society. The Beatitudes commend those whom the world in general would dismiss as losers and wimps. The Beatitudes thus call on those who would be God's people to stand out as different from those around them and promise them that those who do so will not ultimately be the losers. The wimps and losers in the world's eyes get what? The kingdom of heaven, the rule and the reign of God. Jesus is showing us just how countercultural his disciples are to be. This is the completely upside down, flipped, inside out way from how the world functions. See, who do the world prize? The world prizes those who get ahead, the rich. The privileged. In other words, Jesus is here saying it's the poor in spirit, the dispossessed, those who know they are marginalized, those who know that naturally they're on the outside, who are ultimately in. Talk about a reversal of fortunes. And again, I mentioned earlier we have to be very careful when we read or teach the Beatitudes that we don't isolate each characteristic from one another. 
We need to see them as a whole. Again, as Daniel Doriani writes, he says, we must see the Beatitudes as a multifaceted description of a whole person. They are not seven or eight random statements about virtue. Rather, they are a holistic portrait of a kingdom citizen. They portray the heart of the king. Now, what would the original hearers, the original readers of the Beatitudes be thinking in their historical context? Because Jesus is applying themes that would here have been very familiar to the original hearers. You know, we hear blessed are, that's not normal language for us. How many of you, if you're getting together later today and let's say you're watching the NBA finals or something tonight, do you talk to each other going, blessed are the Golden State Warriors if they beat the Cleveland Cavaliers tonight? It's not the way I talk. But see, that would be a little bit more normal because listen, out of the background that they're thinking, okay, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates, he chews, he marinates day and night. Or Psalm 32, another Old Testament declaration of blessing. The gospel in a nutshell. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. This is very familiar language. And out of the context of the Old Testament, commentators tell us that Jesus has in mind here specifically a group of people that would be known as the Anavim. The Anavim are a group of disadvantaged Jews. So again, listen to the Old Testament because you need to understand this in context. Psalm 149.4 says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble, the poor, with salvation. Psalm 34.6, the psalmist, in this case David, identifies himself. He says, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard me. Then again in Psalm 40, verse 17, he says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Now, are the poor in spirit, think about this, are they referring to just the physically poor or just the spiritually poor? Now, everybody say with me, yes, We make labels and dichotomies and divisions that the scripture doesn't do. This is a both and, okay? Because first of all, this poor in spirit, notice the language. It says the poor in spirit. So this can't be just the physically poor, or else Jesus wouldn't have said the poor in spirit. So he's talking here about a disposition. He's making a spiritual reference, But again, we have to look at the Old Testament background and the entire, we'd be going against the entire grain of Scripture if we simply dismiss, if we use this and say, ah, he's talking about the poor in spirit. Therefore, I can neglect those who are marginalized. I can neglect the lonely. I can neglect the hurting. Friends, that would go against the entire tenor of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are always speaking about reaching out to the down and out, reaching out to the marginalized. Who did Jesus hang out with? Who did Jesus minister with? And why did he do it? Because he said we're all, in a sense, down and out. It is a disposition. So in other words, the poor in spirit are those who admit their poverty, their bankruptcy, their impoverishment. And what do they do? They in turn and trust themselves to God. It is the complete opposite of self-sufficiency. It is the complete opposite of a self-reliance. In other words, it's a both and. 
What does seeing your need and embracing your weakness lead to? Well, the next beatitude says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In other words, to see your need is not just to embrace it, but to savor it. And to savor it, why? Not because we mourn. You don't mourn, you don't savor it for mourning's sake, but you savor it because of the blessing, the basis of the blessing. And what is it? You will be comforted by God. You savor your weakness because the hand of God is attracted to brokenness. The heart of God moves towards the brokenness. See, it's impossible not to see these first two Beatitudes. I have to, again, make another confession. When I was preparing the order of service, I, had, I wanted to have two scripture readings this morning. But then I, I had a heart for Al, and I said he'd be standing up here for too long. So I wanted to be careful. James 4 talks about grieving, mourning, and wailing. But the Old Testament background on this is Isaiah chapter 61. And it's impossible not to see these first two Beatitudes as a direct application and fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah's description of the program or manifesto of Jesus that he outlined here. Listen to the words of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Again, the poor in spirit. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress. Instead of ashes, the oil of gladness. Instead of mourning, the garment of praise. Instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, in the context of Isaiah 61, what would they be mourning about? They'd be mourning and grieved over the profound loss of their homeland, their temple, the presence of God, covenant with God, because they were about to be sent into exile. And they would be longing for their homecoming, longing for their return. And so this would be such a message of hope to those in the original that instead of, what does God do? He binds up the brokenhearted. And instead of ashes, what does he do? He gives them the oil of gladness. He gives them a beautiful headdress. He gives them the oil of glad, the garment of praise. Jesus is promising comfort as a return from exile, the return from alienation. Probably one of the best New Testament pictures we get of this is the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son is a perfect picture of this. Think about it. When he runs off with his father's inheritance and wealth and squanders it in wild living, what happens? He, in essence, becomes an exile. He's off, and he's away from his home. He's away from his family. He's away from his home, and he's alienated. He's alone. He's lonely. He's isolated. And when he comes to his senses, what does he do? He mourns over his loss. He mourns over his predicament, and he longs to do what? Come home. And he begins to come home. And is this the beginning of repentance? I think so. But when he prays, he doesn't get necessarily the fullness of repentance because, in a sense, he's kind of like, Father, accept me as a hired servant. Take me in anyway. I just want to come home. But I want to show you something about the heart of God and how God comforts the mourners and convince you that it is a grace to grieve and mourn. Because how does the father of the prodigal respond to his son? 
When the son comes home, just saying, if I have food, shelter, and clothing, I'm happy. Does, does the father sit down and say, welcome home, son. Thank you. It's good to see you. Here's your food. Here's your portion. Now get out and work. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on this text, says it's an unbelievable picture of overwhelming joy, love, and compassion where the father picks up the skirt of his dress, humiliates himself, runs towards the son, runs toward his, the prodigal, embraces him, hugs him, and as Spurgeon says, kisses him and weeps over him over and over and over again. And friends, do you see that that is the promise to those who mourn? See, this is the complete opposite of a depressive or melancholic spirit. Remember, this is about life in the kingdom of God. This is grieving over the loss of shalom. This is not, uh, oh, depressed me, mournful me. This is mourning because sin takes you away from what you were built and created for. You were created for shalom. You were created for wholeness with God. Anything else is cheapening your humanity. It is dehumanizing you. And God is committed in Jesus Christ to making you fully human. He loves you more than you will ever love yourself. And the hardest part of the Christian life is embracing and savoring the love of God. The mournful spirit is a spirit that's not consumed and obsessed and absorbed in yourself, but its focus and its consumption and its obsession is God. Oh, that we would have the psalmist spirit and truly pant after God. When will we get dissatisfied with our casual walk with God? When will we get dissatisfied that we don't thirst and our flesh faint? For the courts of the Lord. It is grace that makes us mourn over our sinfulness. Now let me move towards the last point. I think one of the greatest things about the Beatitudes is it gives us a holistic picture. It is so well-rounded of the picture of a disciple it gives us. Because it gives us a picture of loving God. The poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven. It gives us a picture of and I hesitate to say loving ourselves, but a right view of ourselves, viewing ourselves rightly, mourning over the loss of humanity, mourning over the loss of shalom, mourning and grieving over our sinfulness. And when you have that right view of God and a right view of yourself, it can't help but lead to a right view. can't help but you learn to have a style of relating that you relate well to others. And so this well-rounded picture, notice what he says, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Sinclair Ferguson defines meekness as, and listen carefully to the words, the humble strength that belongs to the man or woman who has learned to submit to difficulties, difficult experience and difficult people, knowing that in everything God is working for is good. The meek man is the one who has stood before God's judgment and abdicated all his supposed rights. You know, one of the books that I'm reading for this sermon series is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic book called Discipleship. And while I don't advocate all of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's theology, I do advocate his look and his, what he's describing as discipleship. Because what he talks about with discipleship is he says the disciple is one who lives by, and he uses the word renunciation. 
The disciple renounces his rights. The disciple renounces what might even rightfully belong to him. The disciple renounces his self-centeredness, renounces his power, renounces his status. And again, notice in this beatitude the connection between Moses and Jesus. Numbers chapter 12 says of Moses, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Now, this, that verse absolutely fascinates me because I want you to think about something for a second. Was Moses naturally meek? Do you think mo- meekness came naturally to Moses? Think about Moses' life, what we know of Moses' life. Does this sound like the natural disposition of a man who earlier in his life When he saw his fellow Hebrew being mistreated, what did he do? He took matters into his own hand. He became basically the deliverer vigilante and took justice into his own hand, killing the Egyptian. Sound like a meek man to you? How was meekness developed, cultivated in Moses' life? Forty years in the wilderness... 40 years in the desert, 40 years of loneliness and isolation, having his pride broken, having his self-sufficiency stripped away, connected with Jesus. Jesus didn't have to learn brokenness because he was a sinner, because Jesus never sinned. But Jesus did learn brokenness because the writer to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus learned, this to me, again, The scriptures are unbelievably amazing to me. I don't know how to describe how amazing they are. It says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. In his humanity, the one who never sinned actually learned obedience through brokenness, through suffering. He learned poverty of spirit. Though he was the richest man, Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake, he renounced his riches. He became poor. That was a willful choice of the Lord of lords so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. How rich? The kingdom of heaven. And what about mourning? Jesus was the one who, although knowing he would raise Lazarus from the dead, still stood weeping at Lazarus's tomb, took the time out. He could have, I don't know about you, but I'm always one who wants, fix it now. I see something and I'm like, fix it now. My biggest struggle in five years with my wife's disability, I want to get in and fix it. Jesus knew he was going to do the ultimate fix. He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he didn't fix it now. What did he do? He took time to weep. He wept over the tomb. He took time to mourn and meekness later in Matthew's gospel Jesus will invite us to come to him all you who are weary tired burdened because of the slavery and the difficulty and the oppression of life and if you're trying to make it on your own it becomes only more oppressive he says come to me and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me Why? For I'm gentle, the same word, I'm meek, and I'm humble in heart, I'm lowly in heart. How lowly is he? A bruised reed he won't break, a smoldering wick he doesn't snuff out, and you will find rest for your souls. 
the countercultural, upside-down picture of the character of a disciple. What do we learn from Jesus? A disciple sees and does what he sees Jesus doing, right? Will you continually take Jesus' yoke upon yourself? Come to him. Be poor in spirit. Will you see your poverty in spirit? Will you embrace it? Will you live with a limp? Will you mourn? Or do you live your life trying to stay so busy that you don't have time to grieve? You don't have time to mourn. Are you so superficial that you avoid God? Or do you take time to really, in solitude, listen to him through his word? Grieve and mourn over the loss of shalom in your life and those you love life. Do you grieve and mourn over the loss of shalom of others? Do you look at our city and our community when the kids come in for VBS? Is there going to be an aspect, yes, of joy, but yes, of grieving and mourning when they come from broken families or when they come from backgrounds of sexual and physical abuse? Do we grieve and mourn over the loss of shalom in this world, knowing that what they need is the comfort of God? And do we show the world the meekness of Jesus? What kind of a vision would that be? How attractive to the world would it be if his image bearers, his representatives, his ambassadors, his children, yes, his bride, would bear and be conformed to the meekness of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, teach us to be your disciple. Teach us, rather than asserting ourselves, Rather than always letting people what we think, know what we think, help us to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek. If this is a picture of Jesus, conform us to the image of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.